Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is December the 18th, 2019, and this is episode 2570 of the Survival Podcast. An expert council member and good friend of the community, longtime community member, John Pugliano, is going to be on with us today. We're going to talk about making America great again with robots. Yep, it's going to be a great, great discussion. I know that because I already had it. Uh, we had some technical issues, so there might be a glitch or two in it, but uh, overall it'll be uh, really, really a great episode. I think you guys will really enjoy it. I'll have John on in just a minute, and we're going to be talking about all kinds of things that are going to be going on in the coming years, but specifically what we have to look to in 2020. Anyway, before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Uh, Ridge Wallet has become one of my favorite things. Uh, it, it really has. I, I just have had uh, a great experience switching from a billfold to the Ridge Wallet. And I know that with Ridge Wallet, my identity is protected, that my credit cards are protected because those little sniffers that can figure out what your RFID cards and all the stuff you have now, well, they, they can't get through the metal of the Ridge Wallet. I carry it in my front pocket like a liner lock knife. I don't think that's the way they really intended it, but boy, it works really well for me. I think if you'll try Ridge Wallet, you will be uh, really excited about it yourself, and you'll find that actually something as simple as a wallet can make a difference in your life. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, ButcherBox. ButcherBox I love so much I take payment from them in meat. Yep, instead of uh, money, every every month a big box of meat shows up at my house, and that's my payment for having them as a sponsor. You know, as you might imagine, obviously, I, I seriously endorse their product because I eat it all the time. It's everything that you're looking for. It's, it's pastured pork. It's pastured poultry. It's grass-fed beef delivered to your door for less than you can buy it for in the store. How do they do it? I don't really know, but I'm glad that they do. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. With that, let's go ahead and welcome our special guest to the show, John Pugliano. John, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Jack, thanks for having me on. You know, I, I feel like a heel because I realized when I uh, set things up for today's show, the last time you were on the air, you sat at my kitchen table with me. Now, not on the air as an expert counsel, but full show like this. You sat at my uh, dining room table with me, and we did a uh, a recording of a podcast when you were out here for the 10-year party. That's over yes. a year ago. So I, long I apologize ago. for not getting you back on sooner. I, uh, I've i missed it, Jack. I've been sitting here waiting for you to call. Yeah. Well, you know you're supposed to fill the form out. I, 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 I told one guy one time, I said, if Jesus and Buddha wanted to be on the show together, they'd have to fill out the form. But you, you get to come on without filling out the form. You're special. I, I get, I get to be on the uh, expert council, and I'm, uh, I'm thankful for that. So, always happy to contribute. Well, the other thing that happened is uh, you got sick. I'm sick this week, so we brought you on to help save my voice. But uh, you, you got sick during the workshop. You weren't able to get out here, and you were supposed to give a presentation called. Making America Great Again with Robots, and you didn't get to give it. I was like, why don't we get you on air, and we'll basically have you do it for everybody on the air. Uh, but that leads me to our quote of the day. I just thought I'd bounce this off you and get some thoughts on it, because I think it fits perfectly with what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, our quote of the day today is from Michio Kaku, who most people know is the uh, kind of eccentric-looking Asian physicist dude that they always have on TV and news shows. Really smart guy. And he said, of future technology... There are dangers, 
but only dangers if people don't understand where technology is taking us. What do you think of that, John? You know, I absolutely agree, and uh, I, I like uh, Michio. I was actually on his show, his radio show, a couple times uh, last year, so he's a, he's an interesting character. Uh, but yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that, and that that's a lot about what we're going to talk about today. I think, uh, you know, I wrote a book on automation and the robots are coming, and um, you know, some of it's bad news, but a lot of it's good news, and it it's like anything else. It depends how you apply it. You know, it just makes me think of is, is people are afraid of like the most mundane technology. I, I saw another one of these things today about don't use the self-checkout because it's going to cost us jobs. And I, I don't know if you saw my counter meme to that, but it's, it's, I've had it around a few times. But it's like, you know, if we look back, every single move forward involves jobs and, and, and functions going away. When we, I mean, people don't really understand. I think what really killed the milkman was refrigeration. Right, so should we have not had refrigeration so that the milkman could keep his job? Because, you know, that's why they had a milkman, because you couldn't just go to the store and get fresh milk all the time. Um, the elevator operator went away when they simplified the elevator. I don't even know they ever needed to simplify the elevator. I don't think it was that hard. Um, countless people got laid off in things like um, telephone operators, uh, typing pools. Remember, you, you, you've talked about typing pools before. There were people that had entire careers built around, you know, being in a typing pool. And every pools and, and and even the ancillaries. I mean, think of think of the people that used to manufacture and sell copy paper. Sure. I mean, the the uh, the old uh, carbon paper. Carbon paper. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, haven't used that in a while. I learned how to use it in high school. They taught me how to sure. use carbon paper in high school. You know. Yeah. The, uh, old, the old mimeograph machine. You know. I mean. Yeah. And, and that's the whole part about technology is, uh, I mean, the advancement for humankind is going to be uh, undisputed. It's it's all the people that are left along the way that that matter and you know our conversation is going to be about trying to help people not be left behind what you refer to it is a uh, tale of two cities the worst of times and the best of times and it could be devastating for some folks um, who do you think has the greatest risk from the the rise of automation and the robots yeah I think it's actually this time around I think it's going to be the white-collar professionals the the you know middle level managers, bureaucrats, those kind of people. The the low hanging fruit, the, the automation has already taken, you know, a lot of the hourly worker jobs and a lot of the the low end. I mean, all, you you see a lot of things about the cashiers and uh, hamburger flipping jobs and things, but you know those are easy to replace and they're not that expensive. It's the I think the the big impact this time around is going to hit the professionals, the white collar professionals, and I, I guess think of it in these terms too. You know, as far as the worst of times, best of times. I graduated from high school in 1979, and in 1979, if you were a 55 year old software engineer, and particularly if you lived somewhere on the West Coast, you you were having it pretty nice in life. You know, you had you you were in the peak earning years of your life. You had another. Uh, 10, 15 years to go for retirement. Uh, if you're, you know, some of those guys might still be alive today. They're doing really, really well. They made a lot of money. It was a very productive period for them. If you were a 55-year-old guy, though, and you lived in my neighborhood in western Pennsylvania, and you worked at the mill or in a coal mine, Oof. well, you know, you were dead. You, were, you, you lost your, you were at the peak earning years of your career. You lost your job. The union couldn't help. Your, your kid eventually. lost a job, you got him. Your, your nephew lost, lost a job. job. Yeah. You, you couldn't sell your house because the community, you know, the real estate values went down. Uh, it was just a devastating time. So, you know, again, it's it's a tale of two cities. Do you live in the Rust Belt 
or do you live in the high tech sector? And, you know, again, this time around, though, it's changing. I don't think it's going to it's not going to hit those factory workers as much because there, there aren't as many of them. The uh, 19th, in fact, speaking 1979, that was the year that manufacturing jobs peaked in the United States. Now, now manu- manufacturing output has continued to go up every year, but the actual labor, you know, actual employment in manufacturing has declined every year since 1979. And, and that part's not going to improve. Uh, in, well, actually, actually, we may. I mean, this, this may be where America does get great again with manufacturing because there's no doubt that manufacturing jobs are – well, manufacturing is coming back to the United States. The question is how much of it is going to be done by, by humans yeah. versus robots. But there's no doubt that America is going to be great again when it comes to manufacturing. I mean, you know, you know David, uh, my buddy David, he's you know, always at these workshops when, you, when you're Absolutely. here. Absolutely. And, you know, they're doing huge projects right now on the Texas coast. I mean, massive multi-million dollar uh, projects for manufacturing facilities. And they're, they're doing them in places where basically they have abandoned uh, gas wells. And there's not enough gas there to make it worth pumping the gas for the mass market anymore. But there's enough gas still there to run a factory for 50 years for free. Right. Yep. So they're building on the tops of the old gas well heads. And they're putting in their own equipment, and they're running all these factories and all the power in these factories from residual natural gas with zero electric bill. Yeah, I mean, and that's that. That's something I talked about in my book, where it's it's really the if you want to look at where the, the manufacturing hotspots are going to be in the next you know, between now and the next twenty years, it's at those wellheads, the, the new ones as well as the old ones, or or along the um, natural gas pipelines. You know, because we we don't want to build infrastructure, we want to really stagnate in terms of building pipelines. So uh, we don't know where the new ones will go in. But if you look at where the, the current network is, and they pretty much, I mean, there's certain paths they run just because of the geography, the way the country's laid out. That's going to be the manufacturing hubs. And a lot of it's going to come back to the old Rust Belt. Uh, you know, Western Pennsylvania, that's where they discovered oil to begin with. It's it's uh, the Marcella Shale up there. It's flush with natural gas. So manufacturing is going to come back to some of those areas. So how is this going to hit the white-collar professional? Let's think of one of our favorite cult movies of all time from the 90s, Office Space. Remember Bill Lumberg? be great if you could come in and work on Saturday and Sunday, and he's walking around with suspenders. And I mean, that's an upper-level, white-collar, bureaucratic job. How do you replace a Bill Lumberg? Well, you know, these, these white-collar professionals um, are going to get replaced for the same reason that the manufacturing or the hourly worker, the blue-collar workers got replaced, it's because their jobs are repetitive and predictable. And, uh, you know, if you're... If so you're, you're saying Peter, Peter doesn't need seven bosses. It, it, that's exactly right. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, you look at... If, if you were working on an assembly line in Detroit and you were screwing lug nut bolts on a, uh, on a car or painting a car back in the 1950s, they needed a human to do that. But... It's it's very repetitive. It's predictable. You know where the spray gun's going to go. You know where that lug bolt's going to go on the on the uh, on the tire. That can very easily be automated. That's the same way with these white collar jobs, mid level managers, um, a lot of people in the medical profession. Uh, these jobs are are predictable and they're routine. They're repetitive. And they can be replaced with an algorithm. A lot of corporate, and, and this is, I mean, this is in terms of corporate America, we, we've seen these jobs go away. A lot of people got laid off in 2008. They were never rehired again from corporate America because 
uh, you know, corporations found out how to do things without them. We have all types of enterprise software, which uh, an, upper, an upper level manager doesn't need, you know, a CEO of a company or president of a company doesn't need all those levels of mid-level managers to tell him, you know, what, what sales are or, or, you know, checking expense reports, all the kind of minutia that mid-level managers did. That's been replaced by enterprise software. And, uh, you know, the, these managers have, tra have, have trained the computers to take over their jobs. I agree, and I also think there's a couple other ways this happens. So one is you, you kind of hit on it there when you talked about like replacing the line worker and what have you. At the height of my misery, which would have been considered by most people the height of my success, I had 38 people directly reporting to me. Now, what they did, you're probably not report, replacing with automation because they were field-level salespeople. Um, but had they been in some kind of capacity where you could replace them or the majority of them, why do you need me? to manage robots. So part of the, the white collar um, hit is when there's, you know, as a new company rolls out or a new, um, a new, you know, arm of a company rolls out, a new initiative, if you're not putting, you know, your, your blue collar headcount in there, you don't need the white collar management. So it might not even so much be the guy that already has a job losing a job, just, the growth's not there anymore, right? All the new opportunities require less management because there's less people. Right, you yeah, yeah. And then the, that's the, like... The, the robot doesn't... You don't have to make sure he shows up for work or that he has his drug test or whatever. No. Uh, but but even on the other late. side, of it too, even, even with the sales force, you don't need that sales manager anymore to report and track on who's a productive salesman and who has the most sales. And, you know, I mean, that's... That's all recorded with enterprise software. Now you have things like Salesforce.com that keeps track of, you know, these salesmen are they are they hitting their goals and objectives? How many clients are they talking to in a day? I mean, all that is all that is documented. It's everything's monitored and measured, and it's done digitally. And you don't need all those people in the middle anymore. So then another way I see this happening, and I've had a couple of people reach out to me from this audience about this. Usually when there's a discussion involving you, that are uh, engineers. And what they'll say is, okay, I still have my job, and I'm really good at it, and I'm lucky I'm really good at it, because they brought in software that lets me do what it used to take 20 engineers to do. So I'm the one that got to keep my job, and everybody else is gone. So it's not that the engineering job goes away, and that's you know that's a good white-collar, upper-level upper job if you're like a lead engineer or whatever. But instead of leading a team of other engineers now, this guy's leading a software system. And some of them tell me that, you know, in another five years, you won't need to be an engineer to use the software anymore. The software right. will become the engineer. And you can have, you can basically t train a person to do the job that's necessary for a human to do in a few months instead of four years of engineering school. Yes. And, and I mean, think, think again, back in the day, there used to be draftsmen. There were, there were men, men that used to sit at oh, desks yeah. and use, use, uh, French rulers and uh, drafting boards, and you know, drafting and, boards and all that, yeah. and then you had you had to have an ability to draw to be able to create a design. Well, you know, CAD CAM software came in. You didn't have to be able to draw anymore. You could you could use a mouse, and um, so that 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 took the people that had that talent and made it easier. And again, that's that's the good news in terms of efficiency and how it's going to help overall humanity because we're. We're going to be more productive, more efficient, 
but there's going to be people in that transition that are going to get hurt along the way. I mean, still looking at, at, at white collar professionals, there are going to be a lot of people in the medical profession. I think a lot of doctors that are going to find themselves dislocated. And it isn't that all doctors are going to go away. But if you're in a field, particularly like a diagnostic field in medicine, which is where, I don't know, I think last time I saw one of the studies, I think the vast majority of, of medical expenses are on diagnostics. It's, it's, if they, once they figure out what's wrong with you, they can treat you, but it's, it's, you know, figuring out what's wrong with you that costs all the money. Um, when that diagnostic component goes away because it's better done by a sensor or, you know, some type of machine or some type of an algorithm, you're going to lose all those people that had a career on diagnosing things. I mean, if you're, if you're a pediatrician and you spend your whole career diagnosing, you know, strep throat and ear infections, and, and someday you can do that, uh, with a smartphone and we're not really that far away from that now. That's, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get to the point where you can, you'll be able to blow into some kind of a sensor and your, your iPhone will tell you whether or not you have strep throat. Yeah. Well, you're, you're not going to need that medical professional anymore because we're going to know, yeah, you got strep throat. You need, you know, you need a prescription you need of antibiotics. Say. You know, you having a heart attack, you're not going to have to get on a treadmill and do a, Electrocardiogram, electrocardiogram stress test because your Fitbit or your iWatch is going to be monitoring you in real life, real time, you know, 24-7. Yeah, I was just and, going to point that out. I mean, EKG, I, I looked it up, uh, its average cost is $1,500. You go to the hospital, get EKG, $1,500. They got that thing now that gives you an EKG. You put your four fingers on it, two with each hand, and it's on sale right now for like 78 bucks. that attaches to your iPhone. Now, if that's yeah. not writing on the wall, and I know what people are going to say, well, you still need the knowledge to know what the, yeah, but it's less and less the case that you need the knowledge. There's always going to be a place for, like, your Dr. House type, the guy that figures it out when no one else can. But I also read a thing recently where, like, there was, like, 20 doctors, you know, like, top docs trying to figure out what's wrong with this girl in Japan. None of them could do it, and the Watson computer figured it out. I right. mean, yeah, and, and that, that's the whole thing is once once it's known, you don't have to go to med school for eight years to go figure it out. It's going to be in an algorithm. It's going to be in the chip of your watch or wherever, somewhere in a cloud, and it's going to flag you and say, you know, you 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 have uh, heart disease or you early onset of heart disease or something, yeah. and we know that because we're monitoring you. So it's going to again, that's that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We're going to catch diseases early. We're going to be able to diagnose them quicker, but. Anybody that made their income on that, that's, again, that 55-year-old doctor that was trained to only do that one function, he may find himself out of a job. And, and again, I know there's a lot of doctors saying, hey, and by the way, a lot of my clients, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm yeah. not predicting the whole downfall of medicine. Yeah. But it, it's, gonna, it's, it's a shift, right? It's like we talked about before. Are you working in the steel mill or the coal mine? Or are you that software engineer in 1979? If, if, you're, if you're a an oncologist today or a uh, radiologist and your whole career, you've been taught how to read x-rays to detect a tumor. Well, I mean, there's software that can do that. And, yeah. you know, maybe it's not approved today by the FDA or whatever, but five years from now, 10 years from now, tomorrow, at some point, there's no doubt that a computer is going to be able to do that better than you. And I think it, there'll still be the case where like, you need to go beyond what the computer can do. You can need that uh, human, uh, in, uh, I don't want to say initiative, and that's not what I mean, intuition. But, I mean, then how? it's not that you don't need a radiologist anymore. How many less do you need? 
How many do you, and how, how many less do you need in the diagnostic part, right? That allows Correct. them to, to shift. Now, instead of worrying about how to identify it, they can be working on how to, you know, how to fix it, how to correct it, how to take it out, whatever we can, we can put that, that brain power in different areas. But, but again, it's for those people that are in the transition. If you're 62 years old and you're getting ready to retire in a few years and all of a sudden people don't need that anymore and you haven't been preparing for sure. it. You're, you're going to be that, you're going to be that coal miner, except now you're not going to be a coal miner. You're going to be a radiologist and you're going to be out of work. You know, the other side too is, again, it's going to be, it's going to be great and we're still going to need doctors, but it's going to be great for the patient because how many times now do you go to a doctor? They don't even look up from their, their laptop or their clipboard. Oh, they walk in the room backwards and they check off a box and walk back out. You never even see their face. They don't make eye contact with you. Okay. But we get to a point now where, we have that diagnostic work being taken care of by automation. Now there's going to be a market for doctors that have empathy, doctors that can communicate with their patients, doctors that, uh, you know, instead of saying that, ah, yeah, you got cancer, you know, they're, yeah. they're holding your hand, they're, they're empathizing with you, they're, they're going to help, they're going to explain all your, all the, uh, they have time now to explain the procedures where before they were just trying to, to get you service. You know, it isn't that they're bad doctors, it's just that, that's the system we were in. Oh, you try it. Anybody that, 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 you know, I get hard on the medical industry as a whole. I do not get hard on doctors or nurses. And anybody that's like, well, you know, they, what they don't give good care with, you try it. You go work, you know, back-to-back 14-hour shifts with everybody pulling you six ways from Sunday, and you find out why it is the way it is. You'll figure it out real quick because it's not easy. It's It's difficult. Right. And again, that's why I think it's the best of times and the worst of times. It's for uh, eventually it's going to free doctors up to be more empathetic and have more human touch, more human relationship than they had in the past. And that's going to be good for doctors. It's going to be good for patients. But there could be that time in between when there's a lot of dislocation. Now, one of the things in your notes, and I agree, is it has a potential to really nullify central power. It also has a potential to consolidate central power. So how do you see those two dynamics kind of pulling against each other? Yeah, right. Good, good and evil. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we see that with, with cryptocurrency. I mean, cryptocurrency has the, has the possibility to replace central banks and get the government out of printing currency. At the same time, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the governments that's most interested in cryptocurrency is China. <laughs> and you know, and you know they're not doing it for uh, good reasons. So, um, I think we see that in all technologies. The, the good news is, is that again? I'm looking. I'm looking at this optimistically. You know, as, as prep, and, I, and this is one of, one of the messages I wanted to bring down to the workshop uh, that I missed this year. But you know, as preppers, we we tend to be um, pessimistic, and we we tend to see the bad side of things. And and I wanted to bring more of an optimistic view of it and say, yeah, you, there there are the, all these possibilities for bad things, but at the same time, look at all the opportunities that we have to use technology to nullify government or, or bureaucracies in general or, uh, you know, these le- legacy organizations. Uh, you think in terms of something like Uber, Airbnb, you know, it wasn't that long ago if you went to a city and you wanted to get a taxi cab, uh, you, they may be hard to find. They were expensive. The drivers were rude or didn't know where they were going. Uh, just all kinds of problems with getting a taxi. You, you, didn't, you know, if we're, if we're coming to – a TSP event, you know, can I get a taxi all the way out to Jack's place or whatever? It's just too far from the airport. Well, now you've got things like Airbnb, you got, you got Uber software. Before you even leave your house, you can know 
if you if you can get an Uber there, what the what the cost is going to be, you can see who your driver is. Uh, that and that the only thing that changed there is is software. I mean, there's really nothing different. It's 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 software, and it was able to go around the government monopoly that the taxi cab drivers had, and not so much the drivers, but the company the the, the companies that owned the medallions for the drivers. They they had a monopoly. And we're able to bypass that and get around it now because of things like Uber. Same thing with the hotels. You know, now, shoot, if you want a you want a vacation property in the middle of anywhere, there's probably some Airbnb or some similar service uh, where you can you can find a, a place to stay, whether it's on someone's couch or whether it's in a you know a mansion you can rent out somewhere. It wasn't that long ago we couldn't do that. You had to you had to go with Marriott or. Mm-hmm. Holiday Inn or, or wherever it was, you know, very restrictive. Again, the only thing that changed was the software. It's nothing more than the algorithm and this putting together that software package that enabled individuals to decentralize from the taxicab companies, from the hotel and uh, those type things. So we're going to see that go into, into government, into uh, big industries that have monopolies or somehow favored uh, with uh, – with privilege from, from government, things like, you know, we talked about the medical system. A lot of the reasons the medical system is the way it is is, be, is because of government. It's not, it's not the doctors themselves. It's just because of the, the way things are set up with, with the government. Uh, education's the same way. Uh, and, and, and we see those things. We've seen those things over the last decade. The, the whole movement with legalization of marijuana. I mean, how much, how much of that is just a cultural thing or how much of it is just technology? I mean, People know the effects aren't as bad as they've been lied to in the past. They can go on the internet and see how to use, you know, hydroponic systems to grow their own weed. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, the genie's out of the bottle. And so government's gotta, they gotta, they have to concede. They have to say, yeah, you know what? Uh, we lied to you all those years about how harmful it was. It, it really is medicinal. And gee, we can't stop you from growing it. So let's legalize it and tax it. Yeah, so it's not it's not all a rosy picture because they will try to use as much of this themselves as they can to maintain control. I mean, I saw China has like a like a citizenship score based on the way you act and, and all this automation uh, kind of builds like an electronic dossier on an individual citizen. Absolutely, uh, the, the facial recognition software, the the social scores, uh, the, and again the fact that they. They're trying to move to more of a digital currency where they can turn on and off your bank account. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, though, look at Hong Kong. Right. And um, I don't think Hong Kong is getting enough of the right coverage. But you look at the, they're on their, I think, almost, I think their seventh month now of protesting. How long did, how long did the protest last in Tiananmen Square? You know, back in, uh, I don't remember what year that was. Uh, It was the 80s. I don't remember was, exactly. Yeah, was, 80, 89 or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Uh, 88. I mean, Tiananmen Square lasted a couple days. <laughs> you know, this, is, this thing in Hong Kong well, is and, and they're, they're, months they're and months. Well, and they're building trebuchets, and they're using bow and arrows and flaming arrows. And, like, and, and, these young and people they, are serious. Like, they're and not they're, taking notes. And, they're and they're using encrypting software, and they're figuring out ways to... Mesh uh, net internet so they can't yeah. be shut down. I mean... Absolutely. They're using all, I mean, so they're, again, it's technology. Um, and, in, and in that case, I mean, again, I think it's a great David and Goliath story where these are unarmed teenagers, basically, you know, kids 18, 19, 20 years old, and they are fighting, you know, one of the strongest military powers on the face of the earth. And, uh, 
Uh, it hasn't gotten to a, a real hot war yet, but the, the reason it hasn't is because I think China's limited in, in the, some of the things they can do. And I mean, China, the Chinese Communist Party, not the not necessarily the people of China, but the Chinese Communist Party is somewhat in a box as to what they can do about it. So it's, it's again that this is something that they couldn't have done. Those protesters couldn't have gotten away with 20, 30 years ago because they didn't have the technology. They didn't. They also couldn't have recorded it. You know, no one really would know. Other than a few, yeah, other than a few cameras of recording what happened 30 years ago, it wasn't much going on. Now everybody is a reporter. Everybody has access to a camera. They can upload it. And you can um, you can show the abuse of government. Well, if you look you know, back, if you look back at let's like, say World War II and the Nazis and the Holocaust, there's two ways to view the technology we have today. If the government would have had access to it, there probably wouldn't be a Jewish person alive on the planet. The other side of it, though, is if people had access to it, there might never have been a Holocaust. Because what what ended up being overwhelmingly supported was pushing back on fascism when people understood the Holocaust. But they, people disappeared. Everybody knew it was bad, but there was no record. There was no view inside. There, and it certainly wasn't for a person in Nebraska, right? It's a, it's a war in Europe. Like you know, Today, I think what, what, what we got with Hong Kong is, yeah, we can, we can use brutality. Yeah, we can put this down some. But we have to be careful because if we lose... The people, there are more of them than there are of us. That's how anybody in a centralized system has to operate. So you have to balance how much fear I create in my people with how much I piss them off, just to be blunt. Like, if I piss them off enough, they will pull the wall off the building and start dragging clowns out in the street. Like, that exactly. will happen. And there's a point where if, you, if you're too harsh, even your military's like, yeah, let me walk across the street and turn around. Right? I mean, like... That And I think that's what we see in Virginia right now starting to happen. Like these these clowns are like we're going to call it the National Guard, and I I, I've, I know people, believe it or not, in the National Guard, a few of them. And I'm telling you, it, it's not that no one will, but the majority, it ain't happening. Like if anything, they'll, they'll cross the they'll either do nothing or they'll cross the line. And when you can transmit, like coordinate and transmit at the level people can today with all this decentralized technology. It's very hard to be completely, we're just going to put this down. Yeah, and that, that's exactly how the Soviet Union fell apart. It you is. know, it's, uh, you know, Boris uh, Yeltsin basically went out to uh, the tank commander that had surrounded the Kremlin and said, hey, you know, you, whose side are you going to be on? And I think the, the, it was a captain, I think, that just stood down and said, we're not going to, we're not going to fire on our own people. And the Soviet Union fell apart. They, 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 lost the support of the people and um again through this technology i think that's going to change again the gun laws as as much as i think the government is overreaching again for the gun laws it is because so many people uh are pushing back and and expanding the rights for second amendment how many women do you know today that carry a lot compared to compared to like 20 years ago like 20 years ago i don't think i knew any women that carried Yeah, uh, maybe an off-duty police officer that was a woman, but now, I mean, I, 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 I bet 25 or more percent of the women I know carry. Um, it's it's so you know they 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 push back, but at the same time it makes people seek freedom more. Uh, you know this whole thing with Pennsylvania with uh, uh, you know more about it than I do, Jack, but this um, 
they're trying to say all gun parts now are, are, all, are any kind of a part is a gun. Yeah, they're saying if you have what they call a ghost gun part, so a, a manufactured part that's not yet a gun, that actually is a gun. Now, the way they're trying to wiggle this in is they're not saying it applies to you and me because you and me can own a gun anyway. And they're not saying that you actually have a gun from a standpoint of since it was in your car and being transported improperly, now you're guilty of a felony. Because in Pennsylvania, you can't just throw your gun in your trunk and drive around. You have to be going somewhere to use it. Um, but they're saying it applies to felons that way. So if you're a felon, you can't have a gun. Well, if the felon has a part to a gun, now we're going to say he had a gun. But as soon as you do that, you're setting legal precedent that that thing, in fact, is a gun. And, yeah, I don't think that's going to work really well either. I think the more interesting thing is Virginia because if you think about it, the, the, the people behind this, they want for the gun control people, want Virginia to be the model. They saw an opportunity in the 2018 elections. They poured money into it. Basically, Virginia's grabbed onto the Bloomberg plan, and they want it to be a template. And I'm like, be careful what you wish for because it might just be a template. Because imagine now, John, you got enough – sanctuary counties or whatever you want to call them, enough you know, rapidly formed militias and stuff that the state goes, you know what, we, we don't really want to be the place that this happens, so the state backs down. Well, what have you just told every other person that believes in their right to self-defense across the country about what they should do if this happens in their state? That they'll back down. And if right. there's, there are places in history this type of thing has happened before, But they're like footnotes because there was no big record of them. Like everybody in the country that cares about this issue on either side sees this happening right now in real time. And I think that's what you have now. Now you have a template. Oh, this is what we do. And the, the beauty of a republic is if it happens in Texas, we have their template plus our modifications, which we can now share. Now it's groupthink. How do you push back against this? Um, just as an aside before we move on, I, I am not shocked at all that Virginia is where this is happening. If you think about it, it is the perfect place for this to happen because 90% of the state's rural backwoods, but you have a huge population center of transplants in the D.C. Uh, area, you know, surrounding the D.C. area in the Beltway. So I think you have enough you know, left-wing voters to swing a legislature But you have a huge role counterpart to counterbalance it. So I'm I'm not surprised that this is where this is happening. A lot of people seem surprised by it. Yeah, I think the other thing will be interesting too is how people push back. Um, you know, there's all kinds of creative ways that, that uh, people are starting to fight back on a lot of these laws. I mean, it, it used to be the uh, the ACLU and places like that always sued. Yeah. And And now you got more conservative groups or more, you know, people that didn't want to get involved. Now they're coming in and, and they're suing, you know, Prager University, suing Google and, and uh, YouTube and things. Um, it'll be interesting this this whole ghost gun thing. I mean, you could you could have people mocking the law simply by reporting everything as, you know, how do you how do you know what what a gun part is? Yeah, I, well, I walked into Home washer. Depot. I, I walked into Home Depot. Yeah, I saw this pipe. It was 15 inches. It was threaded. I, she could have been a gun part. I don't know. Uh, you, you start re, – people start reporting all these things, and they make a mockery of the system. Um, the government backs down. Well, that's what they've done in some of the states with the red flag, flag laws. They publish a list of every person that voted for in the state legislature, 
And then people call in and say, I think this guy's dangerous. You need to go take his guns from him. You know, exactly. I, I'm not saying I necessarily endorse that or not, but it is kind of a turnabout is fair play thing. Like, you guys came up with this idea that somebody could just randomly do this and the police can show up and take your guns, including, well, I don't have any guns. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Pugliano, we need to verify that. I mean, exactly. yeah, so the problem for these people is whatever they do, it's, it, like, that's like, how do you exempt yourself from that? Because a local police officer makes a decision of whether or not to go out there and do it or not. And those guys tend to be a little weak on individual decision-making. They just kind of do what they're told. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I think it's going to be a very interesting time. <laughs> and that's kind of how the technology plays in this whole thing, too, though. It gets back to human nature. You go back and look at history, um, you know, the Salem witch hunts, and they, you know, they, they thought a lot of people were witches when it, when it didn't affect the elite. When the elite started getting accused of being witches, yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden they, they they turned around, right? When when uh, when the ministers and his wife and those people started getting accused of being using witchcraft, all of a sudden the, the elites changed their opinion. Yeah, we need and, to do uh, this a little bit. Yeah, we got to be a little bit more careful on this now, guys. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. When it was just some random old lady that no one cared about, yeah, you could say she was a witch and get away with it. But so that you know. Turnaround's fair play. It, it all comes back. And again, that gets back to technology. I think people are are having less faith in centralized power, and they're going to use technology to go around it. And and the beauty of technology is it, it's ever changing. I mean, you you think about either monopolies that are either have a competitive advantage, or they somehow favored by the government, where they you know they have a, some kind of license monopoly or something. But they're constantly changing. It, it was only in 2004. That Google went public. I mean, that's to me, it seemed like yesterday. I can't even yeah. believe that. I, I looked at that statistic. You know, Google became public in 2004. That year, the number one stock on the Dow Jones Industrial Stock Exchange, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, was GE, right? <laughs> where's GE today, and where's Google? Uh, but at the same time, you look at you look at Google and and Facebook, and they're losing a lot of the power and the steam that they had just five years ago. Uh, you know, they, they, the companies get big, they get arrogant, and new technologies come in and overtake them. But Blackberry, I, I, I look at, <laughs> yeah, you look at it, you look at a company like Blackberry, and it always amazes me how quickly they went out of business. I mean, I can remember, you know, pre about 2005, every executive I knew had a Blackberry, and they vowed they'd never get rid of it. And, you know, 18 months or so, there, you couldn't find a Blackberry. Um, those are, and two young people probably know what we're talking about now with a BlackBerry, but you know, they used to be a phone, a competitor to the iPhone. Um, technology is changing that fast and that rapidly that, um, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing for people that stay on it and stay on top. Now you say that some of this can actually cause deflation. I think it's all about deflation. And I think, um, I think that's why people have been so wrong in predicting the next economic collapse because everybody, you know, it's like the generals. They always fight the old war. Yeah. Uh, they use the tactics from the old war. I think a lot of people remember hyperinflation. They remember the way things were in the 1980s, 1970s. Uh, you know, we, we had rampant inflation. Today, the governments around the world are printing money like crazy. We have central bank balance sheets that – 
the balances are unfathomable. I mean, you could, ten years ago, you couldn't imagine that'd be what they are today. We have negative interest rates, and yet there's really no inflation. And I know you can argue, well, certain. Generally, the inflation is in things where the government's involved in. But if you look in non-direct governmental industries, you 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 see deflation, and um, that's that's because of demographics on one hand, but a lot of it has to do with technology. You look at the whole way Moore's law works. You know, things get get smaller. They get uh, everything gets smaller on a chip. The cost of production goes down. The efficiency goes up, and we see a de- decrease in price across the board. You look at any area from telecommunications to computers. I and mean, we're talking about medicine and things like that, where you have the opportunity to take the cost out. That's leading to deflation. And the good news in that, again, and this is this is looking at the broader picture. It's not something that's going to happen next year. But looking at the broader picture, I think one of the ways that we're going to get around cost constraints and things like unfunded mandates and all the money that's uh, that's not there for Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid is that the cost of service on these things are going to go down. And that's one of the ways the government's going to get out of it. We're going to uh, we're going to have lower medical fees because we're going to have technology that replaces the high cost of medical service today. And, and that'll be in, that'll be in the defense budget as well. I mean, look, look what it costs to train uh, a fighter pilot. Uh, and, and the squadron of aircraft and all those things and all the maintenance support as opposed to if you use a drone. The guy I mean, there's, a, there's a huge difference in, in, kids in defense a budgets. In, yeah, kids sits in a defense uh, bunker in Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah. And flies a drone, you know, 5,000 miles away uh, at, at with capabilities that no pilot – like the drone can do things that no piloted aircraft could ever do because – like the, I think it was the YF-22. If the aircraft is pushed to its full potential, it can actually, you know, kill the pilot, <laughs> right? So with a drone, it doesn't matter. Whatever it can do, it can do. It's and, and yeah, like what costs more? Um, uh, a United States Army uh, major flying a, a, a F-22 or an F-35, or a 19-year-old in Bethesda. Exactly. And so I think across the board, you're going to see lower costs on government spending. And, you know, particularly, again, with things like Medicare, Medicaid, we're going to use more robotics. We're going to use more sensors. Uh, the, the cost of service is going to go down. That's going to be good for long term for the budget, budget deficits, things of that nature. So I don't see the catastrophic collapse like other people do because I think it's going to be made up with technology. What, what do you mean, though, in your notes where you say you think most government debt's going to be monetized? Yeah, I do. I think if you look in, in terms of what's going on in Japan, that's going to be a real good indicator for what's happening everywhere else in the world, particularly the United States. But you look, at, you look at countries like Japan where they have a high degree of automation, they uh, have a, a culture and a very high um, technological use and technological background, very intelligent people, very capable. Uh, they have a declining population, though, and that's really what spurred a lot of their use of automation and robotics. Because of that, though, they have no uh, organic growth of, of their of their uh, you know the birth rate. The fertility rate in Japan is something like 1.5. You need 2.1 to uh, fertility rate of 2.1 uh, births per woman to to maintain your population. Japan's down around 1.5. They are able to 
just drastically increased their debt. I think their debt to GDP right now is something like 230, 235% of GDP. Their central bank owns oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, 45% of government debt is owned by the, the balance on the central, uh, the Bank of Japan's uh, balance sheet. And, and yet their economy is, is plugging along. It's stable. It's, um, the Japanese yen is still looked to as a safe haven currency whenever things go bad in other places of the world. People rush into the Japanese yen. And um, what we're seeing there, though, is because they use so much technology and they've replaced so much of the labor force with technology and they've uh, positioned their manufacturing in places like the United States where the, where the market actually is. You know, they don't have to worry about currency fluctuations. And they don't have to worry about tariffs because they're actually manufacturing in, in the countries uh, where the market is. We're seeing that the Bank of Japan can just print money, it seems like, infinitely. And instead of having runaway inflation, instead of having astronomical interest rates, because no one wants their currency, it's the exact opposite. And they have negative interest rates. Uh, they're going to get to a point someday where when more than half of that federal, when more than their, uh, their government deficit is, is owned by the Bank of Japan, they'll simply able, be able to monetize the debt. They'll write it off. The, the Central Bank of Japan will meet with the Prime Minister of Japan and say, "Look, we just we forgive this debt. This, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, of yen you owe. It's it, we just write it off, and it won't it won't impact the markets. It's not going to hurt any anybody else that owns the Japanese debt because they'll still honor that debt. They'll still, uh, re, you know, retirement funds or pension companies that that own Japanese debt. They'll still honor that." But they'll take the portion that's owned by the Bank of Japan, which was money that was created out of thin air, and they'll simply write it off. And I think that's where Japan's headed. Uh, we'll, we'll likely get to that point as well. So, I mean, the other thing that you're kind of hitting on there is that we're in a, 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 a place now where I think we're going to have a, a lot of population decline. I think it might be one of the reasons that some of the people in power are so big on immigration, whether it be legally legal, they don't care, because we too are not reproducing at a rate to sustain the population. So that can be good in ways. It can also be a problem. I mean, how do you fund Social Security with a declining you know, number of young people to pay for old people? Yeah, that, and that's that's exactly what has spurred immigration over the last 20, 30 years. U.S. right now, I think, is at 1.8. The fertility rate for United States woman is 1.8. The only reason we're even that high is because of the Hispanic population. Uh, but even their birth rates have come down. I think the last numbers I saw uh, among Hispanic Americans, it was um, right around 2.0. So... The overall birth rates are coming down across the board. That's exactly why we've had a lot of immigration in the United States. And and I'm not sure how much of the master plan it is, but you know when the when the central planners look at this and they know that automation's coming, they know that we're going to need a lot less workers in the future. Uh, that that is, I think, another drive to 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 at least reduce, if not eliminate, immigration. It's not all about Trump just building a wall. It's about people actually looking at it and saying, we are not going to need as many people in the future as we have today. And so I, I think the, the bad part about that is it is the, 
it is the deflationary spiral, though. The, the less people you have, the less economic growth you're going to have. And the less economic growth you have, the smaller your economy is going to be. And so you, you get into that deflationary cycle. And young people today, I think that I don't even think we really have scratched the surface on this decline in, in, in uh, reproduction. Young people today do not seem to be interested in having babies. I'm actually surprised when, you know, a 25, 27-year-old couple chooses to have a child. And I don't mean like, hey, we're having a kid, now we're deciding to keep it. I mean like when they go out, they're like, we are going to make a baby on purpose. Uh, where that was like, I don't know, when I was a kid, like people got married, they had kids. Like they just, that was like part of it. Like you get married, within a year or two, you're having kids. And that just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Yeah, and it's not just the U.S. It's not just Japan or industrialized countries. It's across the board. You look at fertility rates. I think the only place that's really above uh, replacement levels is is the continent of Africa and a few countries in the Middle East. Other than that, and there might be one or two down in South America, but other than that, you you see across the board uh, fertility rates around 1.8. Uh, and some of them are extremely low. I mean, I think that Taiwan is like 1.2, 1.1. Taiwan's the lowest in the world. And um, even again, even among Hispanics, uh, one of the reasons I think you're going to see less immigration from south of the border is just there's less people being born down there. Mexico's right around, I think, 2.0, uh, maybe a little higher. But you get into Brazil, Peru, places like that, they're they're all uh, very similar to. Uh, to uh, you know what you'd see among Caucasian Americans, right around 1.7. Huh. So in all of this, with more of a macro look at economics for the U.S., which is most of our people here, you said something that I don't know it might get you killed, John. <laughs> Trump is a genius. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I um I I hate to defend Trump, but <laughs> you just get to the point where. You're talking about economics and deals here. I mean, that's we're being specific to that area. Yeah, being specific to that area, and so many people don't give him credit for anything he does. That I mean, you almost have to go out of your way to to pick things out that he's he's done right. But he, just in terms of of what he's done with the economy in the last few years, he's getting no credit for it. I think beyond that, though, what he's done just to manipulate the system is is, is genius. And uh, it may be it may be diabolical, but it's genius. And and I'm not sure. I, you know, listen, I'm not sure how much of this is by accident or how much of it is pure art of the deal. But I got to believe a lot of it is art of the deal. And you look in, in 2007, he when he when he came into office, he had major deregulation, particularly things like the um, EPA, financial industry, things of that nature. And then the end of 2000, uh, 2017, the end of 2017, he had major corporate tax cut. That was extremely positive for growth. Um, I think it scared the Federal Reserve to death because they you know, saw all this deregulation and tax cuts as just going to be really expansive for the economy. Then he came in, though, in, in 2018, as the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates four times and um, – Really, they just start kicking into high gear that they hadn't really raised interest rates. Uh, from 2006 was the last time they rose interest rates, and then right around the time Trump got elected in 2016 is when they did the first interest rate increase. So they hadn't raised interest rates for for like a decade, 
they suddenly start raising interest rates and Trump comes up with a trade war and tariffs and that becomes very negative to the economy. And the Fed, but the Federal Reserve keeps raising rates. And then you get into 2019, Trump uh, puts, puts the blame square on the Federal Reserve, jawbones them into saying that, listen, you guys are raising rates too much. You, you, if we go into a recession, it's going to be your fault. He, um, he, he just lambasts, lambasts them and says, you know, there, there's, you're doing everything wrong with, with monetary policy. He gets, he gets criticized for that, but at the same time, the Federal Reserve comes in, cuts rates three times. They go from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, which is what we've seen in the last four months or so. And what does that do? And then, and then Trump comes in after they cut rates, and he does a partial deal with the Chinese, talks about lifting tariffs. That puts him into 2020, where he's going to have an overheated economy for the election. He's going to have low interest rates, low unemployment, uh, increase in not only United States economy, global economy, low energy costs. Uh, I, I think he's. I think he's going to have the most overheated economy that any president's ever had going into into re-election. I've been saying all year that unless something crazy happens, and I just don't see it, the guy gets re-elected in almost a Reagan-esque like landslide. Doesn't matter whether I like him or not. I'm not talking about whether I like him or not. I'm talking about being a weather forecaster and saying, hey, there's a storm coming, or hey, it's going to be nice and sunny out. Like, that's what I'm, when I look at that and I go, incumbent president with a good economy, there's never been a situation where an incumbent president with a good economy didn't get reelected. There's only been right. five presidents in the history of the country since going back to Washington who did not get reelected. There's only been five first term presidents who ran for reelection. And that's, um, that's a hard thing to beat. That's a hard trend yeah. to, to, to. I mean, it's yeah, it's not it's not undoable then, but it's 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 never happened. Yeah, and, and we don't know, you know, with the whole impeachment thing, and uh, I really don't think that Democrats have much in their bag of tricks because they would have pulled it out by now. Yeah, but there's, I mean, we so we don't know what's going to happen, and we don't know what self inflicted wound he can put on himself. But just in terms of the economy, he has set up this economy for just amazing growth and uh, you know is it fake is it manipulated is it manufactured yeah a lot of it is but that's still an opportunity for people to make money you know and and, and my job is not you know again like that weather weather forecaster thing my job is not to um um to, to assess the goodness or badness of profitability but simply to make money you know i, mean? I i'm 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 a stock investor, if, the, if I think the market's going to go up, I need to invest in it. I, I, I'm not going to look at the moral reasons for why it does or doesn't go up or whether it fits into an Austrian economics model or yeah. uh, you know, whether I agree with a monetary policy. That's not my job. My job is just to make money. And well, I get people all the time, John, and they're like, but you know it's all a game. And I'm like, yes, it is. So you might want to learn how to play it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. You might want to learn how to play it because it is a game, but it's also the game by which – We buy and sell houses in hotels, right? So you might want – it might be Monopoly, but you might want to learn how to be the dog or the top hat or the race car. Or you can and, just and he, be the the little 
you know, uh, what was the game of life where you get the little stick they put in the car, right? That you, had, you can either be that or you can be the guy that plays the Monopoly game. It's up to you. Yeah, and that's that's the whole point is, you know, and even if it ends badly or if it's going to be bad in the future, are you going to be better then if you go into it with more money than less money? You know, I mean, you need to make, you need to make money. You need to make hay when the sun is shining. And um, I, I just see what Trump has done the last four years is really being genius in terms of stacking the economy to perform well in, in 2020. Now, you hit on something really important there. Like, now is the time to be productive and make money and sock it away. No matter how you're going to do it, now is the time. I remember my grandfather used to tell me a story. He said when he was a little kid, the Depression hit, and he went down to town. And I don't remember what the price was. He'll say it was like a dozen apples for two cents or something. And I, he said all I could do is look at it and go, damn, that's cheap. Didn't matter that it was a good deal. You ain't got money, you ain't got money. And exactly. when you get to this point where, because sooner or later it will end badly because we're a cyclical economy and it always ends badly, that's where all the opportunity is. The problem is most people are highly leveraged when we hit that. They lose everything and they can't take advantage of it. And if you look at one of the masters of taking advantage is it's Trump, right? Because he buys everything when everything crashes. Uh, totally different stamp, you know, Warren Buffett. Well, buy when everybody's way, selling. Absolutely. Yeah, buy when everybody's yep. selling, you know. And you can condemn either one of them for a bunch of reasons, but they're billionaires and you're not. I mean, that's people always tell me how stupid Trump is. I'm like, well, why aren't you a billionaire and president of the United States? Well, his dad was rich. Are you worth a thousand times more than your dad was? No. Then shut up, right? I'm not, you know, it's one thing to say you dislike the guy, or it's one thing to say that you disagree with him, but don't call these people to have mastered this game stupid because clearly they know something the average person doesn't. And 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 with or without Trump, you know, the world is going in into a particular movement, right? I mean, there are yeah. geo, geopo, geopolitical things are changing. And again, I think it has to do a lot with demographics. I think it has to do a lot with automation. Uh, our involvement in the Middle East is uh, is decreasing. It's not decreasing as fast as I'd like to see it. But we depend on oil from the Middle East a whole lot less than we did 30 years ago. Right now, we, we only depend on oil from the Middle East because we choose to. Right now, we, we have choose, no we, need of mil, Middle East oil. We do it, but we don't have to. <laughs> it, yeah, and, and it, it's insane. There's no reason to be a net. There's no reason to be a net exporter of energy. You don't have to do that, right? You the could big, just be a exporter. The biggest reason we keep oil flowing out of the Middle East is not for us to use, but for it to go to Asia. Asia and Europe, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's and that's uh, that may change. I mean, that we we may again with or without Trump, whoever the next president is going to. Be here. They're going to deal with that. This, this whole thing about tariffs. Trump was the guy that let the genie out of the bottle, but it's not going away. The, the trade war with with China is uh, is another cold war, and um, I know a lot of people think China is a, a very dominant force. I, I think uh, I think they're going to have issues in the future. I think it's going to be the things we talked about when when labor becomes when, when cheap labor is no longer the thing. Anymore. Yeah, when it's not the thing anymore, then what do you got? What do you got? And you got then, a whole shitload of people United, you got to, to feed, and you got nothing to do with them. And when the United States is the lowest cost producer of, of energy, 
and we have free, you know, basically free labor because of automation, why would you possibly make something in Asia when you could make it right here in the United States? So again, this isn't happening overnight, but yeah, they, they've got they've got 400 million people that they brought out of poverty, but they've got another billion people that are still in poverty, and um, and not much for them China, to do. China's going to have problems. China China's very much going to have problems. Which could be a problem militarily, though, because typically when a company a country has a lot of military power and a lot of manpower and a resource shortage, they start looking to take other people's resources. So that's my one concern there. That that, that could, that's the way the wars always start. Yeah, it's always about resources. It's always People say it's always a banker's war to a degree, but it's always because of control of and resources. And that's why you see them moving forward with the Belt and Road Initiative and going into Africa and doing all these other things. They've, they've got to have uh, expansion beyond their own economy. But see, they made they, they made like phase one of the deal, and everybody's you know, of course since Trump's involved, with it, it has to be bad for us. It, that's just how everybody takes it, and I don't think it's the best solution so far. But I was absolutely not surprised when we got that phase one to happen, because what happened right before it, USMCA, and when I first saw Trump basically yeah, go to, I, go to again, war with there's no like he went to war with everybody at once, and you're like, wait a minute. Like, that's crazy, because why wouldn't you pick a target and do that deal, and then pick a target and do that deal? Well, if you go to war with everybody, once one crumbles, then it's like, oh, wait, we're going to get left out. And everybody everybody comes and makes a deal. And I think you're going to see deal after deal after deal after deal in 2020. So it won't just be a good economy pushing him to reelection. He's going to have something to run on. And I, yeah, my other reason I think he's going to get reelected is, well, who's going to beat him? Warren? Sanders? Uh, Mayor Pete? I mean, Bernie? <laughs> like, Michael, Bloom, Mike, Michael Bloomberg? Yeah, when I think of any of these people on a debate stage with Trump for three consecutive debates like they do every year in the fall, I'm like, I just, I, I don't see it. I, I really don't see it. And I think Bloomberg even said, I kind of got in because I didn't think anybody could win. I don't know if you're helping, dude, but I agree with that statement anyway. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out uh, again. But I, I just think Trump has been a genius the way he's played it because it was his deregulation and his tax cuts in 2017 that gave him the economic firepower to to fight these other tariff wars and things. And he could have never done that to begin with because it would have dragged the economy too much. So he, he sets the economy up for a positive, and then he goes in with a negative, and then he clears up all the uncertainty just when it's time to run for re-election. It's, it's really genius. What do you say the uh, stock market's going to look like in 2020? Uh, yeah, I, I hate to give forecasts because I always say I have, I have no, no crystal ball. I can't predict the future. Um and things can change overnight, but but just looking at the way it is now, um, and and this is the same tune I've been saying for a long time here. I mean, it's been a good two years now. I've been saying, look, there's no recession. We are not going to see a recession like all these people keep saying we're going to have, um, and that's because corporate profits are too strong. Uh, it looks now like we're going to go into 2020 with corporate profits being about 174 dollars for S&P 500. And if you put the multiples that we've been seeing on there, which are high, they're, they're historically high, but they're not unprecedented for as low as interest rates are. So if you take, um, if you take a price per earnings ratio of anywhere from 17 to 20 times earnings 
and you put it on where corporate profits are going to be for 2020, well, we're going to see an S&P 500 at uh, 3,300, 3,400, maybe higher. And um, that, that doesn't sound like much of a stretch considering now, you know, we're almost at 3,200. But when you look back six months ago, that, that almost looked impossible. But that's, I think that's where we're headed. And it, it could get really dicey. I, although I think we're, we're going to hit that, you know, 3,400, 3,300 on S&P 500 next year, we may hit it really early and then it falls apart and then it comes back. Now, I mean, that would be a, a typical pattern. We, we see too much enthusiasm going into the first quarter then things fall apart. Everybody panics. We get a big downturn, maybe leading into the summer. Then as we get closer to the election and some of the uncertainty goes away, we see the market come back up. So um, I, for me, I'm watching to see if I, if there's a blow off top, I'm hoping I'm smart enough to get out ahead of time and then they'll buy back in on the dip. That's always the, the plan. I think the, the way people get burned on that is they try to get it perfect. Like there's a point where like I've taken enough out of this and you know, you don't try to time the exact top. You, you kind of time the, like, okay, we're, we're getting there and you don't have to time yeah, the exact bottom either. That's you something know? I plan on doing is uh, again, it, it, see, it depends on what, what market conditions look like. But I mean, if we get anywhere near 3,300, uh, I might look at that and say, look, there, there's only a 3% upside to this. I'll just take my profits now use some option strategies to try and stay in the game and uh, wait and see if there's a dip and buy back in. Got you, man. So um, as, as we wrap up here, what's your, what's your bottom line for people when they look around at the world right now? Listen, there's, you know, despite all the negativity and things that we can talk about and all the problems in the world, there's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur or even a skilled employee. And I want, to, I want to emphasize skilled employee because I know there's a lot of people that, you know, even you, you and I are entrepreneurs. We just, we just got to be business people. We got to be in business for ourselves. There are a lot of people that aren't that way. They're, they're happy being employees and, and they're well paid. They got good benefits. They, you know, they're happy where they are. And so I don't want to discourage those people. I mean, if, if you've got a good job and you're making good money and you have good health benefits and things, you should, you should maximize that. Um, but, but in terms of the opportunities, they've never been greater. If you have a skill, whether you're self-employed or whether you're an employee, you have the ability to earn more money than you've ever had possible before. And you can bypass, uh, you know, all the, all the hurdles and all the gatekeepers that used to be out there before by using things like LinkedIn and getting your resume out there, networking with people, you can find ways to increase your income. And you should use that. Go into 2020 with a New Year's resolution on how you're going to improve yourself, how you're going to improve your existing skills, how you can use those skills to make more money, and then how you can use technology to either get a better job or get a raise or start your own company and, and just be entrepreneurial. It's never been a better time. I completely agree. I mean, I, I listen to people bitch right now, especially people that are, you know, 20-somethings, and I'm like, Oh my God. Like, I, I wish the opportunities that exist for people that are like late teens, early twenties today existed when I was late teens, early twenties. Some of these opportunities you would have had to blast me out of with a stick of dynamite. I look at even myself, John, and you know, I do, I run a podcast and I make more money than a lot of doctors do. Like, I oh, couldn't I, do, I couldn't do this 20 years ago. 
Yeah, how, how would I do what, this 20 years ago? How could you do, do what I, you do 20 years ago as an investment no way. manager? I, yeah, even, even, even 15 years ago, I probably couldn't have done it. And, and it, gets, it gets better for me every year. And that gets back to the whole thing of, of um, you know, kind of like to close this out. If people look at the, the nullification of central powers. You know, I don't have a degree in finance. Uh, I've been to your house many times. I've never seen a broadcast engineering degree hanging on your wall. No, you, know, no. You, you you're a broadcaster because you have the talent and the ability, and you learn how to use technology to make it happen. Um, I, I'm I'm an investor because uh, I, I was able to not because I have a degree or because someone you know I have some initials after my name, but it's because I was able to make money in the stock market and people recognize that and they want me to manage their money the way I manage my own. If you have a talent and a skill and ability. You need to maximize that and go out and run with it. I mean, there's there's literally never been a better time ever in the history of humanity to uh, to make money. I agree completely with that, John. And and I want to just say, man, thanks for being with us today. It's a great subject, and uh, I appreciate you coming on. This will be the uh, the last guest show of the year. It was my pleasure. We had some technological challenges with the show. Um, Despite the fact we were talking about technology, hopefully uh, you're able to edit them all out. It turns out okay. Jack, I always appreciate uh, being on. Uh, I want to get down to visit you and Dorothy. Um, I love the TSB community. You guys have been great to me. And um, I just wish everybody a happy, uh, happy holidays. Uh, Merry Christmas. always enjoy having John on. Uh, we did have a couple technical glitches there, and you might have heard a point where the sound of his voice changed a bit. We had a... Uh, get off computer to computer, and I went and uh, Skyped him on his uh, cell phone, and that's how we finished that up. But uh, nothing really that you couldn't understand there. John is just an awesome dude, and I can tell you, man, over the years of working with him, when he tells you something's likely, uh, it's you know he never says it's definite, but he says this is most likely. It's likely. It's usually what happens. He's seldom wrong. Anyway, I uh, hope this was a good discussion. I hope you guys enjoyed it. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you want to support the show and the work that we do, one real easy way to do that is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day for you today is the E-Tech City four-pack of LED lanterns. Uh, I, I've gone to, they, they had two models, an older model and a newer model. A newer model is a couple dollars more for four of them. They're not much. They're $32.99 for four LED lanterns, and the new ones are definitely worth the upgrade. I've gone to where I just exclusively uh, recommend the upgraded ones. If you want the originals, there is a link in the write-up today where you can find the original ones for about a buck less a piece, but I think they're definitely worth the upgrade. Um, these things, I've been recommending them for a long time, and the reason is they're so good for what they are. Um, what I've done is I have a little hook installed in all the main rooms of my house. It's up on the roof. You can't see it unless you know to look for it. Painted the same color as the roof. But if the power's out and I need that room to be lit, I just take one of these lanterns, and it will run for hours and hours and hours on one set of batteries, and open it up. When you open it up, they light. You shut them, they go off. And they have a little thing where you can hang them, just like a little old-fashioned you know, camping lantern, and you hang them from that hook. And that whole room's lit up. Uh, they run on uh, four, uh, three batteries, And they come with the batteries. I mean, just the dozen batteries they come with alone, it costs you eight, ten bucks, and the whole thing's $32.99. These are a great gift. Uh, They come kind of in individual boxes, then they're all together in one big box. So you could even, if you wanted to give away one to a person or two to a person, do that. Um, Knock out a bunch of people in one shot. 
they're great for kids when the lights are out and the kids are scared. Kids love to read by them and with their, their bed and whatever. I mean, they're just, they're just great for what they are. They're not the highest end lantern in the world, but, uh, man, they're, they're just good to go. I've sold literally thousands of sets of them over about two and a half years now. And I haven't had anybody complain about them ever. Uh, that's why I love E-Tech City. Check it out today. The E-Tech City four pack of LED lanterns. And remember this time of year with all the shopping that you're doing, you can always help support us. Just do your online shopping at tspaztspaz.com. With that, we come to the end of the show. Um, here's what I got for you today for a song. We're Christmas Island by Train. Now, I'm going to tell you, Train, I got nothing against Train. Uh, nothing negative to say about Train. There's not really a band I listen to very much. But I like this song. And what I love about Christmas is how... There's different takes on it all over the place. This is kind of, you know, a theme about being in the tropical islands for Christmas. And it doesn't feel like Christmas, but yet it is Christmas. And when I think about it, that's a common theme in a lot of Christmas music. Um, Alabama, one of the greatest country music bands of all time, if not the greatest country music band of all time, because they made modern country what it is, um, has a song Christmas in Dixie. Um, we had Cowboy Christmas with John Denver yesterday. There's always takes on... What Christmas is like in this place or that place. Not every Christmas is, is the way it's always depicted on TV with, you know, snow and lights in New York City. Christmas is something that we have from one end of this country to the other and back and frankly all the way around the world. We're heading through the end of this week and we will be gone. You know, guys, I'm going to be running rewinds, but we are heading on the Christmas, uh, holidays and my Christmas shutdown. Make the most of it. No matter where you are, whether you're on an island, and, and, and hey, New York's an island, right? Whether you're on an island like New York or an island in the tropics or north central Texas like I am or the west coast, the east coast, Florida, uh, middle of the country, which I think is just probably the, the most beautiful place this time of year uh, to spend Christmas is when they get snow in places like Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, anywhere, wherever you are, enjoy it. Make the most of it. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. If someone told me it was Christmas Day, I would say no way. What kind of game you play? Yeah, my beat's insane. The sun's got a plan to make me change.
Island alone. 